Welcome to the Demand Gen Club podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to B2B demand generation secrets and best practices as shared by some of the top leaders in the industry. This podcast is brought to you by SASMQL, the account-based marketing agency based in Redwood City, California. They help venture-funded SaaS companies scale demand generation from target accounts. By combining intent data, automation, and a proven methodology, SASMQL can help your startup generate millions of dollars in sales opportunities within a few months. To learn more, go to sasmql.com. Welcome to a new episode of the Dimension Club podcast. I'm your host, Franco Caporale. Our guest on the show today is Kathy Dunley. Kathy is the founder and president of New England Sales and Marketing, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. She started a company to meet the demand generation needs of B2B technology firms. Kathy works with companies of various sizes that may be privately funded or publicly traded. Before starting New England Sales and Marketing, she was Director of Marketing at CCSI and SimpleTuition.com. So I'm very happy to welcome today Kathy Dunley, founder at New England Sales and Marketing. Katie, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Franco. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I would love to begin with uh, a little bit about your background and how did you get started with uh, B2B demand generation and B2B marketing? Well, that is a great question because I had to take a minute. It was it was a while ago and I had to remember and the kind of nice thing about how I got started was um, I had an opportunity in in my earlier jobs in the publishing sector. One publishing company I worked for had a market research subsidiary, and it competed with those companies, you know, like Gartner, Forrester, IDC. And I ended up, you know, working in that subsidiary as a telecom industry analyst. And it was a really, really great job. I enjoyed it very much. And it got me interested in these different technology companies and serving them as a resource. As an, as an industry analyst, I, had, um, I worked with many different organizations. And um, some of them you will have heard of. Some of them are no longer around today, the earlier telecom companies. And it gave me an extraordinary background in understanding markets and strategic marketing. And as time went on, I got more involved with specific vendors. So instead of serving you know, a bunch of different companies at one time, I would go on to work for a particular vendor and um, that was providing either a hardware, a software, or a professional service. And I got more specific into marketing and more specifically into the demand generation aspect of marketing. So it, was, it came from a, from a big platform, if you will, of understanding strategic marketing and understanding the buyer and understanding the marketplace. And that has proven invaluable to me uh, over the years. It's been really helpful. So as, a, as the president of New England Sales and Marketing, um, what type of clients do you guys work with normally? So overwhelmingly um, B2B technology companies, and they tend to, my clients tend to have sort of a long, complex sales cycle for the most part. Some do not, but the most, for the most part, they do. So my clients who are usually in, in sales and marketing themselves need to build trust, and they need to develop 
great long-term relationships with their prospects and with their clients because they tend to be complex sales. They tend to take time to come to fruition. And, um, and so we're all sort of of that culture. And everything we do needs to support that type of process. And what stage? Are they startups? Uh, are they mid-market companies, larger companies? Like, do you yeah. have a segment in particular? They are all over the place, Franco, which is something that I really enjoy. They tend to, as it stands right now, they tend to be a bit more established, but for but I have certainly served um, the complete gamut, whether it is startup or established and looking to be acquired or something in between. And they can be, you know, venture-backed, private equity-backed, privately owned, publicly traded, so they're all different types of companies and all different sizes as well. You know, a small size for me might be 10 or $15 million and just go up from there to hundreds of millions of dollars. And in some cases, a billion or more. So it really, um, it's really interesting, though, how demand generation sort of is a unifier. It's sort of an equalizer because it almost doesn't matter what size company you are or, or at what stage of um, development you are, you're going to have those demand generation challenges. It's not easy for anybody, whether they have an established brand or not. And um, I find that demand generation is something that, that unifies or equalizes um, all different types of companies. And when these companies approach you, Kathy, what do they usually ask you, like, what, what's the challenge that they have that prompt them to approach you? Well, they want to get better at uh, filling the top of their funnel. That's something that they all have in common. They want to sort through what works and what doesn't work. They want to develop best practices for themselves because they know. I'm very, very fortunate in that. I, I work with a lot of great, accomplished people in sales and marketing. And they want continuous improvement. They want a process of continuous improvement where, you know, maybe something has done well for them for a while, but they can't rest on their laurels. They need to try, how can we adjust this? How can we try something a little bit different? How can we try something that we haven't done before? And a phrase that I like to use on them is test before you invest. So there's so many options out there and it's so, and they're very well marketed as we know all the different tools that are available. Some of them have very strong marketing behind them. And um, it, can be, it can be very confusing if you're out there as a buyer and trying to decide what direction to go in to strengthen your demand generation programs. So they kind of use me to sort through the noise and make sure we stay focused on, on what works. And they use me to implement those programs for them. So obviously that requires different technologies, different processes. Is there a particular tech stack that you recommend to these clients and maybe have them implement uh, or uh, it really depends on what they're trying to do and at what stage they are? Well, I love that. I love that question because there is no set answer. I think in my experience, a tech stack is a very personal choice and needs to match the culture of the company. And I like to be able to take a look at what different sales and marketing groups have available to them for resources. What kind of people do they have in the group? What kind of, um, you know, what are their goals? And 
I like to really look at how will this type of technology look in their culture, in their environment. Um, so in other words, if I know they have some internal resources that are going to help them with the implementation, and it's just, you know, they have that bandwidth to do it, then that's great. But if I know that they absolutely don't, that whatever kind of um, technology they use is going to have to be configured by an outside consultant, and that's going to come with a certain price tag, then, you know, I'm, I help make them aware of that as well. So I think a tech stack is as personal as clothing, and you really have to understand the culture of the company before you make any, any recommendations. And do you have uh, any personal favorite, for example, for CRM or marketing automation in particular? Yep. Well, you know what's interesting? I don't because, again, something that may have worked beautifully for one company may not work for the next. So I don't have a particular stack that I say, you use all these platforms and it will work for you. I think that I, you have to make different recommendations based on what you know about the company. So, for example, what I see, and in many instances, these are corporate decisions. So I do love to, to be asked and I love to make recommendations, but ultimately they're going to have to make their own decision. And one thing that I see happening, and this is a real trend, and I've seen this over the course of many years, CRM is incredibly important to um, the majority of my clients. And quite often they have something in place and then over time they might make a different decision. And a real trend I see very commonly is for an organization to start with Salesforce and then move to Dynamics. And now it's actually coming around again where I have seen some people literally over the course of maybe the last five or six or seven or eight years move from Salesforce to Dynamics and back to Salesforce. So all this really is driven by their comfort level with it, how they have or have not been able to be successful with it. But at the end of the day, it's about have they been able to configure it either with internal resources or with consultants, have they been able to configure it in a way that they can use it without headaches every day in a way that makes sense. So from a CRM perspective, people can sometimes float around. Another trend I'm seeing is there were companies that invested in HubSpot many years ago and it sat unused. And I see them coming back to it these days to try to make use of it. And either they will have an internal resource, maybe a, a recent um, graduate that they will task with, with bringing that HubSpot to life for them. And, and that's just an interesting trend that I'm seeing lately. It's, again, something that had fallen by the wayside, but people are coming back to it. And sometimes they will, in addition to the platforms that I've mentioned, another that I'm seeing more people take another look at after all these years is Pardot. So it's really interesting. It ebbs and flows, uh, and it depends on the culture of the company and who's in charge at the moment. Yeah, I think the, the fact of leaving a system unused, even though you invested in it, is becoming quite common. And I've seen it for many different reasons. Maybe like the person that championed that system left and then nobody really wanted to take over. And so it just stays there unused, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Absolutely. So 
I wanted to kind of shift from technology and talk about metrics. Again, I assume, you know, these clients come to you with different challenges. So maybe they are trying to optimize a variety of metrics. What what are the most common KPI that these clients come to you to improve? And what do you track on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis? So most of my campaigns are multi-channel. And a real, uh, a very popular and important service that I provide is telemarketing. And I consider that where the rubber meets the road. So all of the investment in time and money that you've made in your platforms uh, to try to support inbound lead generation or to support um, getting your, you know, getting your message out there, it really, the real reckoning happens on the phone, I find, with my, with my clients. Um, These, they are not supporting sales processes that can happen without personal relationships. You know, when you pick up the telephone, it sort of takes all of that activity that might have been automated and it makes it make sense or not. Either you reach the prospect or you don't. Either you qualify them or they're not qualified. So I find that the real the real truth, if you will, happens on the phone and it sort of takes all of that automation and um, it helps the automation work for you. On the KPI perspective, is uh, is a conversion on the phone, like or a, mm-hmm. a demo set? Like, what kind of what kind of metrics do they look at? So they're looking at um, on the on, on the automation side. They might be looking at you know clicks and downloads. So they do they all do a lot with email, um, which I heavily support. I've done 800 email campaigns since 2003. And they're, they're looking at, you know, who opened, who clicked, what did they click on? And then on the, or, or if they had content to offer online, who downloaded what and when. And then um, from there, assuming we're doing a multi-channel campaign, we're also taking a look at the, the conversation rate. So how many conversations are happening? Never mind how did they go, because we're reporting on that as well. But that's a very qualified, that's sort of a, quality documentation, if you will, where you're, you're documenting um, what transpired in the conversation and then you're kind of scoring from there. But those are some of the top ones. What was the, what was the automated activity, if you will? And then how many, you know, how many people are we actually reaching and what, what direction are those conversations taking? Those are incredibly important uh, measurements for all of my clients. Very interesting on on the metrics, especially uh, I assume the larger the company, the more they rely also on like call center and telemarketing. And so they need Mm -hmm. to track those interactions. And uh, do do they usually put them back into Salesforce or into Dynamics? uh, Or uh, how does does that data flow back into their system? Right. Ideally, yes, it does. But keep in mind, everyone I work with is, is trying to tame technology. They're trying to get it to do what they need it to do, and it and it doesn't always work out that way. Um, say they're you know they had a, a gig with a consultant and then it's over, and then they don't necessarily have the budget to bring that person back again. So they're kind of le- they had they're left hanging where they left off, and that can be a real challenge. So ideally, everything would reside in CRM. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but ideally, yes, it would, and ideally every. Um, lead would have a or prospect would have a score associated with it and you would be able to see in CRM exactly all the recent actions taken. So in most cases that works out, but in some cases that just doesn't work out. 
which is which is a real frustration. And that's, you know, that's unfortunate because then you have to sort of keep track of things more manually, which is fine. It can work, but it, it can get really sticky, especially if you have a larger sales team and you want to always keep track. You should, you know, as, as we all know, everybody wants a system where you can you can log in and see all of the relevant actions around that prospect or around that customer, that sort of best case scenario. But unfortunately, not everyone is able to achieve that. Yeah, I agree. I see that all the time. And so kind of moving away from the metrics and more on the campaign side, in your uh, career and working with all these clients, can you give us an example of a very successful demand gen campaign that you have them execute on that you were particularly <laughs> excited about the results? Mm-hmm. You know, as I've, I've said a couple of times now, multi-channel is so important. So if I am, you know, working uh, an, a really well thought out campaign, then that's, that's typically going to lend itself to a more successful result where there were different components to it. There may have been different types of email. Then, you know, you have the telemarketing as well. There might have been social media supporting that particular campaign. So those campaigns that are most successful typically have multiple channels behind them because I always say it takes a village to generate a qualified opportunity. And I really do believe that, which is, you know, again, lends itself to really successful results, more conversations with more qualified people. You're reaching more people who really do have a problem, who are willing to de- willing and in, in wanting to develop that relationship with a new vendor. You have more education about each person that you're reaching out to in each company that you're reaching out to. You have a reason for wanting that, that particular company. So the thought-out multi-channel campaigns tend to be really, really successful. What is, uh, on the other hand, something that maybe you don't recommend uh, or you tested as a campaign and actually didn't produce the result that you were expecting and you wouldn't test it again? Yeah. Well, this is kind of an interesting one because this, um, I, I was really intrigued by this. I was working for an organization that wanted to meet new prospects. So they wanted to make relationships happen with people that they didn't already know. There was absolutely, it was cold. There was absolutely no connection between them. And what they did was, was kind of interesting. They had um, in different markets, they bought up some tickets to sporting events, which on its face may have sounded like a good idea. Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't this person want to go to, you know, this hockey game or wouldn't this person want to go to, I think in Florida was a certain tennis match or, and it sounded interesting because you or I or a number of other people might want to go to those events. However, when it was offered as an incentive, you know, as sort of a prospecting incentive, as an incentive to get to know the company, it wasn't really well received. And I think that part of the reason was you had this company that you've never heard of before offering tickets to a sporting event, but it would, there was sort of an awkwardness about it because it was an offer that might have made sense if they were more familiar with your company, if they had some interaction with the people that they would attend the event with. So it, was, it turned out to be sort of an awkward ask, and I, I kind of considered it like the like the crew, like it was almost like asking if they wanted to go on a cruise, right? It was that kind of 
you know, um, here's an opportunity for a, for a free cruise. It was just, it was a very kind of awkward and unpopular ask. So some people were coming back, well, all people were coming back saying no. They either weren't allowed to accept sporting, you know, tickets to a sporting event. It was against, you know, company policy or for the most part, people were just very straightforward with me. And when I'd reach out to them and, you know, and sort of confirm whether or not they were, they were interested, they were overwhelmingly not interested. So, and, and as I said, some people would say, sorry, it's against policy or, you know, I'm sorry, I just can't make time for that. Or I don't want to waste your time. Um, I would probably not do business with you. So I don't want to waste your time having you take me to a, a sporting event and use that ticket. So it was interesting because that was the result all across the board without fail. There was no other response, absolutely no positive receptivity to going to one of these sporting events. And some of these were, you know, these were teams that you would have heard of. So that, you know, was, was a particularly unsuccessful campaign. And it's because there was a mismatch between where they were in the sales process, which was right up front. I mean, these leads weren't even near the funnel, much less in the top of the funnel. They weren't even near the funnel. And they were approaching them with an offer that would have been more appropriate if the relationship had been warmer first. So I guess that, you know, that goes to show you can't, you have to pay attention to where you are in the sales cycle when you develop your campaign. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Uh, if there were already opportunities and you try to accelerate the opportunities, I see that working very well. Because obviously mm -hmm. the, the sales rep already know the prospect. They spend, you know, an afternoon together. That's always mm -hmm. positive. But mm -hmm. yeah, as a first, first interaction, spending five hours or three hours with right. the sales team is kind of definitely awkward. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Right. Perfect. So I want to kind of close the, the, the episodes talking about sales alignment. So first of all, I want to ask you, when you think about the SDR team, both outbound or inbound SDR, do you see them reporting to marketing, to sales, or is it better to have a hybrid type of uh, system or structure? Like what, what's your ideal situation here? Mm -hmm. Well, um, internal SDRs typically re report to sales in, in my world, but sometimes they don't have a ton of SDRs, which is why they might outsource to me. But generally speaking, they would, you know, they would be part of the sales organization. But I'm, I'm very, very fortunate in that the types of organizations I work for would typically have a very strong relationship between marketing and sales. They are best friends. And whether they have, you know, one person who's VP sales and marketing, or they have two different, one leader in sales, one leader in marketing, those two individuals tend to be, tend to be very close. So. I don't often experience that dread that dreaded chasm or two silo system marketing and sales. So that's sort of how how things tend to be organized. If if you're in a real, you know, inside sales situation, then that person tends to report up into sales. However, the marketing team, I mean sales is their number one customer and that's that's the attitude. Um that's a winning attitude. So any kind of um structural you know, organization, there's a lot of dotted lines in between the people in sales and the people in marketing. The, the less experienced marketers, those who might be sort of marketing coordinators, 
um, they are encouraged right from the start to develop very close relationships with people on the sales team. And in, in one customer I had actually had um, sort of a, a mentoring program, if you will, where the new entrants to their marketing team were kind of, they had salespeople sort of take them under their wing so that they could fully appreciate the sales process. So that's how things tend to be organized in, in the world that I work in, and I am very grateful for it. That's awesome. Thank you. That's a very good perspective. So I want to close with one last question, which is, is there any way for a company to try to generate quality leads on a limited budget? Is there something that you tried that worked out that other companies can also test? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't care what size your company is. No one has money to burn. They never do, and they never will. So you're always looking to keep the, you know, keep the budget in line. And I find that there are, there are a couple of different things you can do. But at the end of the day, what I would consider a real hack, and it's becoming more and more of a hack with every passing year, is picking up the phone to get the result that you want. Now, every once in a while, you will run into a culture that just does, you know, they're, they're not as uh, quick to use the phone, and that's fine, and you need to be aware of that prospect culture. But for the most part, the phone call has elevated in importance in, in recent years because there's so much automation and there's so much going on online that to have a person-to-person -person conversation that is personalized where you have a specific reason for calling that prospect and you've, and you've done your homework and you've gotten to know their situation before you reach out to them, that is, that's prospecting gold. And it's something that they don't, that prospect doesn't experience every day. Yes, they may be sought after. Yes, they may receive a ton of email. And yes, they may receive some phone calls. But to, you know, to receive a personalized call. So I'd say if you consider that a hack, pick up the phone to get the result that you're looking for or combine that with, with email communication as well. And I'm finding, like I said, even though this is an instrument that's been around for how many years, in our world, it's getting more and more important for meaningful conversation and more meaningful relationship building and, and meaningful business. It's a little bit like direct mail that is coming back. Uh, mm -hmm. The phone calls are coming back as well because everyone is sending emails today. Absolutely. What goes around comes around and there's, there's never a bad time for meaningful personalized outreach, however, however you can do it. I 100% agree. Uh, Kathy, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for spending the time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Franco. My pleasure.